All right, let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing on his preaching. Father in heaven, Lord, you are the Lord who speaks, the Lord who speaks things into existence where they do not exist. Lord, you call lightness out of darkness. You call life out of death by your word. And we ask that you would do the same this morning, that for those who do not know you, that you would call them to life, that you would call into existence faith where there is none, that you would raise the dead through the preaching of your word. Lord, just as Christ called out to Lazarus from the tomb and simply spoke his name and he rose, Lord, would you through your word call us? Father, we do pray for those of us who do know you and who you have made alive by your spirit, that you would call to life from death, the places where there is sin and death in us, that you would put it to death through your word, and that you would call us and bring us to newness of life continually, renewing us by your spirit as you wash us and cleanse us with your word. We pray you do this by your spirit in the name of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Judges chapter 8, we're going to read verse 30, and then we'll skip over to chapter 10, and then again chapter 12. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. Judges chapter 10, verses 1 through 5. After Abimelech there arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dodo, a man of Issachar. And he lived at Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim, and he judged Israel 23 years. Then he died and was buried at Shamir. After him arose Jair, the Gileadite, who judged Israel 22 years. And he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, and they had 30 cities, called Havoth-Jair to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jair died and was buried in Cammon. Now chapter 12, verses 8 through 15. After him, that is Jephthah, Ibzon of Bethlehem judged Israel. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters, and he gave in marriage outside his clan 30 daughters he brought in from the outside for his sons. And he judged Israel seven years. Then Ibzon died and was buried at Bethlehem. After him, Elon the Zebulonite judged Israel, and he judged Israel 10 years. Then Elon the Zebulonite died and was buried in Ijalon in the land of Zebulon. After him, Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Pirathonite, judged Israel. For he had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 donkeys. And he judged Israel eight years. Then Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Pirathonite, died and was buried at Pirathon, in the land of Ephraim, in the hill country of the Amalekites. Thus ends the reading of the word of the Lord to us this morning. May he bless it to our hearts and our souls. Security. I wonder how many of you reflect on your security right now. 
Your security may be in finances. Are you secure financially? Do you have enough wealth stored up for the future? Have you seen a financial planner who will help you figure this out? Are you secure in your home? Is your, are your doors locked right now? Maybe you have watched the movies Home Alone this time of year, and as they reflect of all the things they left undone as they left their house and realize, oh, we left the garage door open. Was their house secure? Well, they left other things, as we know, many of us who've seen that movie. But is your house secure? Is your home secure? Is your family secure? What kind of protection do you have in place for your family to look after them? And those are just our own personal lives. What about in our society, in our culture, in our country? Are we secure as a country? We, as Americans, probably enjoy the most secure country in human history. One of them, at least, we could say. It's amazing the amount of of military forces that are sent around the world and in our country to keep us secure. Now we might be thinking this is beginning to wane in our society, and it causes anxiety in us. And when we lose security in our lives, that is the cause for anxiety. It is that feeling that we are left defenseless, without protection in our lives. And what we will begin to see in our text this morning, what I hope to show us, is the way that wealth plays a role in protecting ourselves. Proverbs 18, a proverb we read a few months ago, says this, a rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his imagination. Wealth is like a wall of protection for us. The more money we have, the more we are able to alleviate problems in our life as they come. A few months ago, our toaster broke. And it was one of those things that you think, it's just a toaster. But then you realize you really enjoy toast. But the question comes, do you want to spend the money on a new toaster? It just burns the bread a little bit. Do we want to go out and spend all that money? And then you think, these aren't like the toasters made in 1950s that seem to last 20 or 30 years. The toasters now last a few years, and they burn one side of the bread and don't toast the other. Struggle that I had when we had to buy a new toaster. But it's that sense of, do you have the finances to go and actually procure those things that you want? And it's why we want to build up retirement accounts is so that we can protect ourselves in the future from problems as they, as they come. And when we have wealth, it gives us peace. It gives us peace of mind that our future will turn out okay and that we're able to obtain relief for ourselves when problems come, when sickness strikes your household, when illness or when injury strikes you when you have to visit the doctor. Do you have enough to pay for the health care that you have? And this is the plight of the poor, why Scripture laments the plight of the poor and why they're to be esteemed in our eyes because they don't have this. Many of us may even struggle with this ourselves, feeling poor, that we don't have protection, the protection that wealth provides. Instead, we're exposed We're at the mercy of whoever and whatever comes our way. Ultimately, we depend upon the Lord and look to Him as our final protection. And in order to increase peace and protection in our lives, we must increase security, and wealth is the means by which we can do this. And that's what I would like us to see this morning, as we see a nation increasing its wealth, its security, 
But the question will remain for us as we look at this text. Are they really secure? Are they really protected? Are they really truly wealthy? So let's look at this. I would like us to see Israel's pursuit of security and then our pursuit of security. As we read the text this morning, you might be thinking, why in the world did we jump around like this? Well, our title of our sermon is The Minor Judges. I think it would be better to call them the brief judges. There are detailed judges that we looked at, Jephthah last week, and then next week we start the famous judge, Samson. And they have lengthy accounts about their role as a judge, what they've done, their victories and their failures. But these judges, there's six of them, we don't have much that's listed for us. There's one judge we didn't read. We've dealt with him in weeks past, Shamgar, in, verse, in chapter 3, verse 31. He gets one solitary verse for himself. But here we have five more, and I read this account of Gideon, as I think it will help us see some things of what the author of Judges is trying to portray for us with these judges. So what are we to make of them? They just have these interesting stories. Donkeys. Who cares about donkeys? It's just an animal that sits on a farm, doesn't do much. Maybe it carries some things around, but why is that a big deal? Why should I care about people who have 30 sons, 30 daughters, 40 sons, 30 grandsons, donkeys, and cities? What in the world does that have to do with me? But when we see the structure that the author of Judges lays out for us, we, begin, we can begin to discern what they're trying to show us with these judges. In Hebrew literature, they often use something that's called a chiasm. Maybe you have heard of this, but it is something that starts at the beginning and works its way down and then works its way out. The beginning compares with the end, and each step along the way, each individual compares with the later individual. In fact, all the judges themselves are arranged this way. The first judge, Othniel, is compared in the end with Samson. Jephthah, as we saw, was compared with Ehud. Barak and uh, Deborah are compared with Gideon himself, or with actually Abimelech, the anti-hero. And at the very center of the story is Gideon himself. And he is the both good and bad judge. Well, what about these minor or less detailed, these brief judges? Well, I think the clue comes for us in the number of sons that are indicated for us. As we read, Gideon had 70 sons. And the next time we hear about 70 sons is the last judge here, Abdon, 40 sons, 30 grandsons, who rode on 70 donkeys. But then in between them, we have two other judges, Tola in chapter 10 and then Elon in chapter 12. Tola is the son of Pua and Dodo, but he is listed with no descendants. We find out his lineage, but there is no continuing lineage. He has no heirs, no people beyond him that's listed. And then Elon in, this, in chapter 12, comparing to him, is also listed, but without father, without lineage before, or without lineage after. But then we move further down into this. We see Jair in chapter 10. He has 30 sons, 30 donkeys, and 30 cities. And then in chapter 12, we see another repetition of this number 30 in three times. Ebzon, he has 30 sons, 30 daughters, and 30 daughters from the outside who come in. So they are being compared with one another. But there's something interesting about what's happening here. 
Is that the, who is at the center of all of this? It's Jephthah. We see Gideon has 70 sons. Jair has 30 sons, 30 daughters, and 30 more daughters. We see Ibzon has 30 sons, 30 daughters, 30 cities. Abdon has 70 descendants. But as we saw in the last few weeks with Jephthah, does he have descendants? No, he is without heir. He is like Tola and Elon, a man without descendants. In fact, a man who sacrificed his own one and only descendant. And so we begin to see this picture emerging here of a picture of judges who are growing in wealth, growing in descendants, but at the very center is this question of, do they really have an inheritance? The author is highlighting for us the plight of Jephthah to say he is surrounded by those who are wealthy, who have descendants, but at the very center of this story is one who has no descendant and has no inheritance. In fact, the end of Jephthah's life is described this way. He was buried in the cities of Gilead. We don't even get the city that he dies in. We don't get his lineage. The only lineage we hear of Jephthah besides his father is that his father Gideon or his father Gilead is that he is the son of a prostitute, a man of shameful heritage and a man without heritage. So we're left to wonder, are these people truly wealthy? Do they have what an inheritance is? Do they have what should constitute for us an inheritance? Well, I would like to show, say that they have increasing wealth. These judges that we see, they have an increasing wealth, but they also have an increasing spiritual poverty. To much of us, this is foreign. We think, who cares about having 30 sons or 30 donkeys or 30 daughters from the outside, much less 70? That sounds very expensive. We try and quantify our children how much they're going to cost so what does this make sense? Why would anybody want this many descendants? See, Jay, the writer of Judges could have written this. He could have said, simply said, these men are wealthy. And we've been like, okay, that makes sense. I can get that. But why this list of the number of descendants that they have? He doesn't want us to merely see their wealth, but the nature of their wealth. It's one thing to say someone is wealthy, it is another thing to point out the things that they have. They have six homes, a yacht, they drive Ferraris, they live in Malibu, California. We begin to get a sense and a feeling of what that wealth is, the extent of it. And children, in particular sons, were signs of generating wealth. They did not have a mobile society like we do. They stayed in one local area, and they had to work the land. And the more children you had, the more potential wealth generation that you had. They were part of your household. They were workers. They were people who could produce for you. They weren't simply looked at as a cost, a line item on the family budget. They were looked at as your future wealth. And the more you had, the more you could work your land and the more you could acquire. And then they had donkeys. Now, for us today, we might think, now, this is something very strange. Who would want to ride on a donkey? 
Why is that a big deal? Well, in that culture and time, having a donkey was, was a big deal. Now, I don't have a donkey. I don't know if anybody here in this church has a donkey, but they're an animal, and it takes money to feed an animal. And a donkey is not a small animal. It requires effort and money to feed this thing, to take care of it. That having a donkey meant you had enough food to not only feed your family, but feed this animal. It was a sign of excess. But it was also a sign of transportation. They didn't have cars. And to get anywhere, you had to ride around on a donkey was a sign of luxury. It's like a modern-day luxury vehicle. Having a donkey was like having a Mercedes-Benz, as one author points out. It's not like a horse. I don't know if you've ever tried to ride a horse. It takes some effort to get up on top of a horse. They're tall. Their backs are almost as high as my shoulders. But to get on a donkey, it's much lower. This is an easy-to-get-in vehicle. It's not like riding in a lifted pickup truck that you have to climb steps to get into. A luxury sedan. And they're growing in wealth, growing in sons, getting more and more of these donkeys. But what do we see with these judges? What do we see with their lives? Well, the first clue that we have about the nature of this wealth is what they do with it. Not just simply that they gain it, but how they gain it and what they do with it. We see in the life of Gideon that he had 70 sons, but the text gives us that note that he had 70 sons because he had many wives. He is acquiring for himself all these women and even a concubine who he has living far away and gives birth to his aberrant son, Abimelech. But then we also see in chapter 12, verse 8, Evzon. He has 30 sons and 30 daughters, but what does he do with his daughters? He gives them in marriage outside. Outside where? Well, it's potential that it's outside his clan to another tribe, or it's possible that he gave these outside of Israel. Now, why would you give your daughters in marriage if you have 30 of them, which most likely means he is, has many wives, something that is not looked favorably upon in the Old Testament? Why would you do this? For security. Ancient times, they would marry off their daughters as ways to secure themselves with other people. If your daughter lives with somebody else and is their family and lives among their tribe or among their people, it is a way to say, I won't attack you because you have my daughter, and I won't attack you because you also have my daughter. It was their form of securing alliances, of making treaties, was the exchange of daughters in marriage. He sends his 30 daughters away and takes 30 daughters for his own sons. He's making deals. He's trying to provide security for himself. And this is not a way that was called for the people of Israel to secure themselves in the land. He gives his daughters away. This is in contrast to Othniel who gives his daughter Oxa away as a prize. Not as a way to secure his livelihood, but as a way to demonstrate his beneficence, his generosity. And he gives it to the 
or to uh, Caleb gives his daughter Atha to Othniel, the first and only, we may say, good judge or truly righteous judge. But this was the highest form of protection in that time, to give away your own daughter to secure yourself. And their daughters are used now no longer as those who are prized, but as pawns. They're political pawns. They're used to shore up strength for themselves. They're used to protect themselves. And we're left to wonder, who are they making alliances with? The text doesn't tell us. But why do they need to make these alliances in the first place? Who is their protection? Is it the Lord? Or is it their own ingenuity? And the other question that remains for us, are they really at peace? If you have to do this, does this mean that you're actually at peace? Yes, they're growing in wealth, a sign of peace. But are they really at peace? But then we hear the opulence of these judges. Abdon, the last judge, the seeming wealthiest of all judges, has 70 sons and grandsons, 40 sons, 30 grandsons, riding on 70 donkeys. This is a parade. This is a massive display of your wealth, of going around showing that you indeed are almost like a king. Donkeys in that time were considered a kingly object, that something that kings would have. And we see this in much of the Canaanite religion around, that donkeys were a desirable object because they showed that you were wealthy and you were like a king. And we're inclined to think, at least the Israelites were inclined to think reading this, that Abdon must have been a great judge. Abdon must have won all kinds of victories to acquire this much wealth. But at what cost? What do we hear about Abdon or any of these other judges except for the very first one in chapter 10? Who do they fight against? Who do they accomplish their victories? All the judges that have come before them have been listed as according to who they defeated. The Philistines, the Amalekites, the Ammonites, the Canaanites. But who do these judges fight against? We don't know. It's as if they're not fighting at all. All they're doing is acquiring wealth for themselves. And as we saw last week, there is a very important element that is missing from these judges. All the original, the first judges, at the end of their tenure, it does not say how long they judged and then they died. It says, and the land had rest for so many years and then they died. But in these brief judges, there is no rest. They're acquiring wealth, a sign of rest, but is there truly rest for the people of Israel? All of them die and we simply get their tenure, and it is a brief tenure. The other judges had round numbers, 40 years, 80 years, but these get just normal numbers. This is a sign of growing way of looking down in those cultures of saying this is not as important. These are weaker men. But then they end with Abdon on this ominous note. The wealthiest of all of the judges of these minor or 
brief judges, ends with this ominous note. He was buried in the land of Ephraim in the hill country of the Amalekites. Now, if you have been reading through the book of Judges or paying attention, you might know something is off here. Throughout the entire book of Judges, the land of Ephraim, their hill country, is always referred to as the hill country of Ephraim. This is a hill country on the western side of the Jordan River. It's elevated hills and mountains, and it's where much of the battles were fought, and it was also a source of protection to the people. But here it is not referred to their hill country of Ephraim as the hill country of Ephraim. It's referred to by one of their enemies who they were supposed to destroy. Abdon dies and was buried not ultimately in the land of Ephraim, in the promised land. He was buried in the hill country of the Amalekites. For all that he accumulated, for all that he amassed, where was he buried in the end? In the land of his enemies. Are these people at peace? All his wealth was not an indicator of how well things were going. All his wealth is an indicator of how poorly things are going. All these judges now amassing alliances for themselves, self-protecting, shoring up security for themselves, only looking out for themselves and using those below them as fodder to be traded away to protect themselves. And one last thing about these judges. There are six of these brief judges and six major judges or detailed judges, which add up to 12 total. What the author of this book of Judges is trying to show us is that this is an indication and an indictment of the entire nation of Israel. The entire nation of Israel starting off well and as you move throughout its judges and through its history, it becomes worse and worse. All they are is self-seeking people looking out for themselves, seeking to shore up their own security and anybody that is in their way, they will use as something to be traded away. It is representative of the whole of Israel going further and further into apostasy. So what are we to make of this? How do we think about our pursuit of security? What are they ultimately pursuing? What are these judges looking for? The good life. Here was a land for them, as God told them, a good land. A good land. And they had to secure the blessing of that land through their own obedience to the Lord. But are they being obedient? The blessing that they are securing, is it the true blessing? They have forsaken what the Lord has called them to do, to trust him and to walk in obedience to him. Instead, they seek to secure the blessing through their own efforts, through their own works, their own ingenuity, their own way of obtaining God's blessing. It's the sin of Achan and the sin of Ananias and Sapphira. A little brief refresher. Achan, he took the things from the city that God had devoted to destruction. Israelites had come in, destroyed a city, 
And then Achan goes in at the end and takes some of the gold and precious stones to himself that God says, no, this is all heap and rubble. He thought his life consisted in possessions. He thought, how could we destroy this? This is my security. This is going to provide well-being for my family. We're going to have a lineage. We're going to have an inheritance. What are you people thinking? Ananias and Sapphira lied to the church about their giving. We have given so much, but they held back part of their goods for themselves. They wanted to appear generous without actually being generous. They thought the good life consisted in how others perceived their generosity, whether or not they were actually generous themselves. They wanted the good life. The ultimate ways that we seek to find our security is just like these judges. Protection and security and wealth. Now, this is not to demean wealth in and of itself. We ought to be good stewards of the things that God gives to us and the belonging that he sends our way. God gives to us blessings. He blesses certain people, some more than others. Saving for the future, paying off debt, giving and being generous, even accumulating wealth are all good things. This is what our larger catechism says right here. 141 of the duties of the eighth commandment, do not steal, or as we would also say on the positive side, what we are to give that in an endeavor by all just and lawful means to procure, preserve, and further the wealth and outward estates of others as well as our own. Yes, we ought to grow wealth and we ought to use it for the good of others and for the good of ourselves. But what does Jesus say about how we are to think about wealth? Luke chapter 12, Jesus has a discussion with a man that's quite revealing for us of how he thinks of this. Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Someone in the crowd to him said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide my inheritance with me. And Jesus said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And he goes on to tell a parable about a man who acquired all this wealth and said, I can sit at ease. I can now have the good life. And in the end, the Lord tells us that God requires his life of him and says, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Where is our protection? Where is our security in this life? Does it lie in your wealth? Does it lie in your possessions as the Israelites were growing and thinking? This is what the Israelites were to learn from these judges. They're failures. That a true king ultimately does not find his wealth in monetary things. The king who provides true protection, who truly cares for his people and looks after them. A king who would not use his power and wealth to exploit those underneath him, but to preserve and to protect and defend them. To not send them away. To not look after his own self where 
Who knows what's happening with the enemies around? Our catechism says, how does Christ execute the office of a king? This is what the people of Israel were to learn. They needed a king. And how does Christ himself execute the office of a king? He does this in subduing us to himself, bringing us under his rule, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and in conquering all our enemies. This is what the people of Israel wanted, or what they were supposed to want, what they were to need truly. True protection. One who would defend them and care for them and look after them. Who would provide for them all that they truly needed. Ultimately, they needed one who would provide for them their inheritance. Who would secure it for them and give them the inheritance that they longed for. All these Israelites are showing to us their ways of trying to gain the inheritance. Of gaining life. Ultimately of gaining eternal life. And time and time again, these judges could not do it. And they would not do it. They failed. They came short. Jephthah. And then last one here we see Abdon. But we have a true king. Who has provided for us the inheritance that we need. He has provided for us the promised land that we need. First Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord and Jesus Christ, of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Where is your security? And where is your protection? Is it ultimately in your wealth? Is it in your ability to acquire protection in this life? As helpful and as good as that may be? Or is your security and protection ultimately in the Lord Jesus Christ? who gives you the inheritance as a free gift in himself. He is the one who has obtained the inheritance. And he is the one who is guarding us through faith. As we look to him, as we say, yes, all my wealth in this world can be taken away. Even my own life can be robbed from me. But they have taken nothing away from me that will not be restored. People who look in faith to their Savior, Jesus Christ. This is what Israel needs to see, and this is what you and I need to see. That we have a Savior who has obtained the eternal life, the good life, the perfect life. And he gives it to us as a free gift to those who acknowledge and say, I'm a sinner. I have sought in all kinds of ways my own good life apart from God. And the only good life is found in Jesus Christ who gives it to me freely. So forsake your ways of trusting in your wealth, of trusting in this life, and look to Jesus Christ and trust him as the one who alone delivers to us the inheritance that we need. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do look to Jesus Christ and we pray you would grow our faith
as we look to him, turning our eyes away from this world and turning them up heavenward to see Jesus Christ, the one who is ruling and guarding us and defending us and protecting us even now. And Lord, give us hope that we have an eternal inheritance, eternal life resting in Jesus Christ. And though we enjoy it now by faith, one day we will come into that inheritance and enjoy it fully and completely. Lord, care for us as we look in faith to Jesus Christ, we pray in his precious name. Amen.